Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. on us for every customer current new everyone to show the love folks black star network is here He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roland. I love y'all. All momentum we have now 
We have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Today is Tuesday, June 28, 2022. Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from New Orleans, where we are partnering with Coca-Cola. Right here on the Black Star Network. Coming up, we'll talk about the January 6th uh, hearings. Folks, a surprise witness says that Donald Trump told Secret Service, don't search my folks. Knowing full well they had weapons, she even testified that he got into an altercation with a, a Secret Service agent who tried to grab the steering wheel to go to the U.S. Capitol where the insurrection was taking place. My Lord. Supreme Court, folks, uh, is not going to allow a second majority black district to be created in Louisiana for the midterm elections. We'll give you the breakdown on this hearing. These conservatives don't give a damn about black people. I'll fully explain that. Also, a black Connecticut man has been paralyzed uh, as a result. He was critically injured and paralyzed uh, from the chest down while in police custody. They filed a lawsuit. We'll tell you about that particular lawsuit. Also, in our marketplace segment, uh, a black wine entrepreneur wants to go to the next level with the business. We'll tell you all about it. Folks, lots to break down on Roland Martin Unfiltered. It's time to bring the funk on the Black Star Network. Let's go. Folks, there was not supposed to be a January 6th committee hearing today, but there was a surprise witness who testified. And oh, my goodness, did she have some shocking revelations uh, in today's testimony? Her name is uh, Cassidy Hutchison. She was a longtime aide to Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. And she laid out some damning testimony. Chairman Benny Thompson and Congresswoman Liz Cheney they laid out exactly preparing folks about for a testimony, but he was still, we were still shocked with what we heard. In our hearings over the previous weeks, the select committee has laid out the details of a multi-part pressure campaign driven by the former president aimed at overturning the results of the 2020 presidential election and blocking the transfer of power. We've shown that this effort was based on a lie a lie that the election was stolen, tainted by widespread fraud, Donald Trump's big lie. In the weeks ahead, the committee will hold additional hearings about how Donald Trump 
summoned a mob of his supporters to Washington, spurred them to march on the Capitol, and failed to take meaningful action to quell the violence as it was unfolding on January 6th. However, in recent days, the Select Committee has obtained new information dealing with what was going on in the White House on January 6th and in the days prior. Specific detailed information about what the former president and his top aides were doing and saying in those critical hours. First-hand details of what transpired in the office of the White House Chief of Staff, just steps from the Oval Office as the threats of violence became clear and indeed violence ultimately descended on the Capitol in the attack on American democracy. It's, an important, it's important that the American people hear that information immediately. That's why in consultation with the Vice Chair, I've recalled the committee for today's hearing. As you've seen and heard in our earlier hearings, the Select Committee has developed a massive body of evidence thanks to the many hundreds of witnesses who have voluntarily provided information relevant to our investigation. It hasn't always been easy to get that information because the same people who drove the former president's pressure campaign to overturn the election are now trying to cover up the truth about January 6th. But thanks to the courage of certain individuals, the truth won't be buried. The American people won't be left in the dark. Our witness today, Ms. Cassie Hutchinson, has embodied that courage. I won't get into a lot of detail about Ms. Hutchinson's testimony. We'll show. I'll allow her words to speak for themselves. And I hope everyone at home will listen very closely. First, I'll recognize our distinguished vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening statements she'd care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. In our first five hearings, the committee has heard from a significant number of Republicans including former Trump administration Justice Department officials, Trump campaign officials, several members of President Trump's White House staff, a prominent conservative judge, and several others. Today's witness, Ms. Cassidy Hutchinson, is another Republican and another former member of President Trump's White House staff. Certain of us in the House of Representatives recall that Ms. Hutchinson once worked for House Republican Whip Steve Scalise, but she is also a familiar face on Capitol Hill because she held a prominent role in the White House Legislative Affairs Office and later was the principal aide to President Trump's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Ms. Hutchinson has spent considerable time up here on Capitol Hill representing the Trump administration and we welcome her back. Up until now, our hearings have each been organized to address specific elements of President Trump's plan to overturn the 2020 election. Today, we are departing somewhat from that model because Ms. Hutchinson's testimony touches on several important and cross-cutting topics, topics that are relevant to each of our future hearings. In her role working for the White House Chief of Staff, Ms. Hutchinson handled a vast number of sensitive issues. She worked in the West Wing, several steps down the hall from the Oval Office. Ms. Hutchinson spoke daily with members of Congress, with high-ranking officials in the administration, with senior White House staff, including Mr. Meadows, with White House counsel, lawyers, and with Mr. Tony Ornato, 
who served as the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. She also worked on a daily basis with members of the Secret Service who were posted in the White House. In short, Ms. Hutchinson was in a position to know a great deal about the happenings in the Trump White House. Ms. Hutchinson has already sat for four videotaped interviews with committee investigators, and we thank her very much for her cooperation and for her courage. We will cover certain, but not all, relevant topics within Ms. Hutchinson's knowledge today. Again, our future hearings will supply greater detail, putting the testimony today in a broader and more complete context. Today, you will hear Ms. Hutchinson relate certain firsthand observations of President Trump's conduct on January 6th. You will also hear new information regarding the actions and statements of Mr. Trump's senior advisors that day, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and his White House counsel. And we will begin to examine evidence bearing on what President Trump and members of the White House staff knew about the prospect for violence on January 6th, even before that violence began. To best communicate the information the committee has gathered, we will follow the practice of our recent hearings, playing videotape testimony from Ms. Hutchinson and others, and also posing questions to Ms. Hutchinson live. Folks, the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson was unbelievable. Um, even what she heard as they talked about what's going to happen leading up to January 6th. We uh, will begin today with an exchange that first provided Ms. Hutchinson a tangible sense of the ongoing planning for the events of January 6th. On January 2nd, four days before the attack on our Capitol, President Trump's lead lawyer, Mr. Giuliani, was meeting with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others. Ms. Hutchinson, do you remember Mr. Giuliani meeting with Mr. Meadows on January 2nd, 2021? I do. He met with Mr. Meadows in the evening of January 2nd, 2021. And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night, um, and he talked to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Uh, Ms. Hutchinson, Mr. Meadows is engaged in litigation with the committee to try to avoid testifying here. Um, what, what was your reaction when he said to you things might get real, real bad? In the days before January 2nd, I was apprehensive about the 6th. I had heard general plans for a rally. Uh, I had heard tentative movements to potentially go to the Capitol. 
But when hearing Rudy's take on January 6th and then Mark's response, that was the first, that evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. Folks, talk about shocking and stunning. Then Cassidy said Trump demanded, demanded he be taken to the U.S. Capitol and even told the Secret Service, don't even search his followers for weapons, knowing full well they had weapons on them. Let's turn now to what happened in the president's vehicle when the Secret Service told him he would not be going to the Capitol after his speech. First, here is the president's motorcade leaving the ellipse after his speech on January 6th. Ms. Hutchinson, when you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go? When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the chief of staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. Once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the Beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Renato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story from Mr. Renato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Renato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. 
Now, if y'all really want to get a good laugh, Trump actually said, I don't lie. Listen, we're going to show now an exchange of texts between you and Deputy Chief of Staff Ornato. Um, and these text messages uh, were uh, exchanged while you were at the ellipse. Um, in one text, uh, you write, but the crowd looks good from this vantage point as long as we get the shot. He was effing furious. And the text messages also stress that President Trump kept mentioning the OTR, an off-the-record movement. We're going to come back and ask you about that in a minute. But could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson? He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out at capacity for uh, all attendees. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing. Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in, but he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in. And did you go to the rally in the presidential motorcade? I, I was there, yes, in the motorcade. And were you backstage uh, with the president and other members of his staff and family? I was. And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area. When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. <laughs> but when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Just to be clear, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that the president wanted? to take the mags away and said that the armed individuals were not there to hurt him. That's a fair assessment. This whole day shows you the sheer uh, incompetence in, of these people and what they were trying to do, how they were literally trying to overthrow uh, this country with this election. And at one point, this key phrase, blood will be on your hands, was uttered. Ms. Hutchinson, I'd like now for us to listen to a description, your description of what transpired in the West Wing during the attack. For context, in this clip, you describe the time frame starting at about 2 p.m. So I remember Mark being alone in his office for uh, quite some time, and you know, I, I know we've spoken about Ben Williamson going in at one point, and I, I don't personally remember Ben going in. I don't doubt that he had gone in. Um, but I remember him being alone in his office for most of the afternoon, around 2 o'clock to 2.05. Around 2 o'clock to 
you know, we were watching the TV and I could see that the rioters were getting closer and closer to the Capitol. Mark still hadn't popped out of his office or said anything about it. So that's when I went into his office. I saw that he was sitting on his couch on his cell phone. Same as the morning where he was just kind of scrolling and typing. Um, I said, hey, are you watching the TV, Chief? Because his TV was small, and I, you can see it, but I, I didn't know if he was really paying attention. I said, are you watching the TV, Chief? He was like, yeah. Said, the riders are getting really close. Have you talked to the president? He said, no, he wants to be alone right now, still looking at his phone. So I start to get frustrated because you know, I sort of felt like I was watching a not a great comparison, but a bad car accident that was about to happen where you can't stop it, but you want to be able to do something. And I just remember, I remember thinking in that moment, Mark needs to snap out of this and I don't know how to snap him out of this, but he, he needs to care. And I just remember I blurted out, I said, Mark, do you know where Jim's at right now? And he looked up at me at that point and said, Jim? And I said, Marcus, he was on the floor a little while ago giving a floor speech. Did you listen? He said, yeah, it was, it was real good. Did you like it? And I said, yeah. Do you know where he's at right now? And he said, well, no, I haven't heard from him. And I said, you might want to check in with him, Mark. And I remember pointing at the TV and I said, the rioters are getting close. They might get in. And he looked at me and said something to the effect of, all right, I'll, I'll give him a call. Not long after the rioters broke into the Capitol, you described what happened with White House counsel Pat Cipollone. No more than a minute, minute and a half later, I see Pat Cipollone barreling down the hallway towards our office and rushed right in, looked at me, said, is Mark in his office? And I said, yes. He just looked at me and started shaking his head and went over, opened Mark's office door, stood there with the door propped open and said something to the, Mark is still sitting on his phone. I remember like glancing and he's still sitting on his phone. And I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of, the rioters have gotten to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very, clearly had said this to Mark, something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's gonna be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control, I'm going down there. And at that point, Mark stood up from his couch, both of his phones in his hand, he had his glasses on still. He walked out with Pat, he put both of his phones on my desk and said, let me know if Jim calls. And they walked. And of course, Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. They knew what was happening. That's why they wanted those pardons. One other point about the speech, Ms. Hutchinson. Did you hear that Mr. Trump at one point wanted to add language about pardoning those who took part in the January 6th riot? I did hear that. And I understand that Mr. Me that Mr. Meadows was encouraging that language as well. Thank you. And here's what you told us previously about that. 
You said he was instructed not to include it. Who was instructing him not to include language about the pardon in that January 7th? I understood from White House Counsel's office coming to our office that morning that they didn't think that it was a good idea to include that in the speech. That being Pat Cipollone? That's correct. And Eric Hirschman. Ms. Hutchinson, did Rudy Giuliani ever suggest that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? He did. Ms. Hutchison, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Mr. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Ms. Hutchison. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Wow. Let's go into this with my panel. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for environmental justice at the EPA joins me. Uh, Demario Solomon Simmons, civil rights attorney and founder, uh, Justice for Greenwood, Dr. Avis Jones DeWeaver, uh, political analyst and author. Okay, Demario, how in the hell, after today's testimony, do you not, does, does Merrick Garland not charge Trump with seditious conspiracy and these other individuals? I mean, what she described was beyond shocking. I mean, absolutely. He should have been charged. He should have been charged back on January 6, 2021. Only way it doesn't happen is the same way the Democrats never do anything. Uh, they're spineless, they're feckless, they're weak, scared. This guy should be charged. Meadows should be charged. Rudy Giuliani should be charged. Right now, this is all about show and tell. What I want to see is the Department of Justice executing arrest warrants, indicting these individuals, having them in court and let this evidence come out in a court of law where there can be some real serious ramifications. Anything short of that only emboldens these rabbit dog-like individuals even more to continue to do the illegal criminality and they will make sure they are successful next time, not like this last time. Um, what's interesting here, uh, Avis, um, just a few moments ago, um, uh, Peter Alexander with NBC said a source close to the Secret Service tells me both Bobby Engel, the lead agent, and the presidential limousine SUV driver are prepared to testify under oath that neither man was assaulted and that Mr. Trump never lunged for the steering wheel. Now, the U.S. Secret Service did put out a statement saying the U.S. Secret Service has been cooperating with the select committee since its inception in spring 2021 and will continue to do so, including by responding on the record to the committee regarding the new allegations surfaced in today's testimony. I can't imagine, Avis, uh, this committee not, this committee allowing that testimony to go forward and not having the receipts to back it up. Yeah, I, I can't either. Um, but w what we see here is damage control in real time. Uh, you know, who knows everything that is going on in terms of all the people behind the scenes um, that in some way are looking to kowtow to someone who is using his power as a threat against so many people. Uh, it's really interesting to see uh, history in real time with regards to uh, Trump's sort of mobs-like behavior uh, that continues to put him in situations where no matter what he does, 
He can find people to fall on the sword for him. He can find, find people who are willing to go to jail for him. He's promising to help people or promising to hurt people, depending upon which side uh, of the line they fall on, either for or against him. As thorough as this committee is, as you've mentioned, it's hard for me to believe that they would allow something out in public testimony that they don't have information to back up in some way, shape, or form, because they understand that their credibility is on the line. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But what we saw today was still ground-shaking. And let me tell you, that's there's more to come. Mustafa, again, this is thuggish behavior. Uh, this is a man who was hell-bent on overthrowing uh, this government. In fact, uh, there was even a, a particular clip, y'all get that ready, uh, where uh, Hutchinson testified uh, that um, Trump had no problem for them hanging Mike Pence. Here's some of that. I opened the door to the dining room, briefly stepped in to get Mark's attention, showed him the phone, like flipped the phone his way so he could see it said Jim Jordan. He had stepped to where I was standing there holding the door open, took the phone talking to Jim with the door still propped open. So I took a few steps back. So I probably was two feet from Mark. He was standing in the doorway going to the Oval Office dining room. They had a brief conversation and in the crossfires, you know, I heard briefly like what they were talking about, but in the background, I had heard conversations in the Oval dining room at, the po at that point talking about the hang Mike Pence chance. That clip ended, Ms. Hutchinson, with you recalling that you heard the president, Mr. Meadows, and the White House counsel discussing the hang Mike Pence chance. And then you described for us what happened next. It wasn't until Mark hung up the phone, handed it back to me. I went back to my desk a couple minutes later him and Pat came back, possibly Eric Hirschman too. I'm pretty sure Eric Hirschman was there. But I'm, I'm confident it was Pat that was there. Um, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something, this is effing crazy. We need to be doing something more. Briefly stepped into Mark's office. And when Mark had said something, when Mark had said something to the effect of he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. You know, President, uh, the person we used Stop. to uh, label... I mean, I mean Mustafa, this is nuts. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, let's just truly unpack what this is. You know, uh, Trump saw himself not only uh, as the label of a president, but what we're finally seeing uh, sort of play out in front of everyone is an American dictator. You know, an American dictator, a ruler with total power over a country, typically one who has gained control by force, a dictator will hang or support the hanging uh, of individuals who stand against him or who stand for uh, justice or democracy or any of these other labels that you want to use. A dictator will also sacrifice their people 
They'll sacrifice others for their own personal gain so that they can continue to control the power. So this is the dynamic that we are seeing play out. I take it far above him being a thug. He has truly tried to be a dictator. You know, he's trying to grab power away when he lost the election, then rally individuals to actually move forward and try and break up democracy so that he could then regain uh, the power that he lost when he lost the presidency. Um, so we need to just be clear with who this man is, how he sees himself, uh, and then also the individuals who continue to support him. You know, I've worked with the Secret Service. I know plenty of folks who've been in the Secret Service. And folks should take this very serious, because not only are you damaging your career, that oath that you took to protect this country from those both domestic and, and abroad um, is serious. Um, so let's just call out what we're dealing with, and that is the first American dictator. So my... Go ahead, Mario. My question is, what has been put in place to stop this from happening again? What will occur? Right now, everything that we've seen over, since January 6, 2021, the Republicans have done whatever they wanted to do to create a better environment that they can steal the elections, a better environment that they can be dictators, a better environment so they can have minority rule. That's why, regardless of all this, these show, uh, hearings that we're seeing and the bombshell testimony, if these individuals are not charged and indicted soon, and we see them going through the court criminal justice system that my clients go through, there is no way in the world that anybody black or anyone that was not a rich white man could have this type of evidence and not be charged. If we don't see charges soon for Trump and his and all the Republican elected officials who participated in this, if we don't see Congress soon utilizing the third clause of the 14th Amendment to, to impeach these insurrectionists from Congress, this will happen again. This discussion, these hearings will be for naught, and we will be in a much difficult place, terrible place in 2024. Oh, absolutely. All right, folks, hold tight one second. Uh, Got to go to a break. We come back. We'll talk about a case out of Connecticut. A uh, black man uh, paralyzed after, uh, again, an incident up there uh, with police. Uh, also, uh, we'll be talking about uh, the case out of Louisiana where courts ruled to create a second black district in the state. Supreme Court has put a halt to that. GOP don't give a damn about black people. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from New Orleans on the Black Star Network. Verizon just gave us all a brand new iPhone 13. We've been customers for years. We got iPhone 13s too. Switched two minutes ago, literally right before this. iPhone 13 on us on any unlimited plan for every customer. With plans starting at just $35. All on the network more people rely on. I looked up to Spike Lee. Of course, who didn't? I mean, he's a, he's a he's a genius. But then also, I was this 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 kid from Brooklyn right. that felt like you know. Give me my damn respect. I, you know, I, I I made this you know this creative art right that people are responding to, and it would have been great if we had the opportunity to sit one on one. Hold on one second. Okay, Spike. 
So I'm in LA right now. I got a one-on-one -on -one series with my network, Black Star Network. And I'm interviewing Maddie Rich. I appreciate that, bro. That's, that was, that's a big moment, man. That was like, uh, man, that was good. Got me all choked up. That's good. Well, I'm all about connecting. Appreciate that. Love our new Alexa. It's a Buick. Yeah, Alexa. Buick. Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. Coach, that's a Buick. That's an Alexa. The Buick Enclave with available Alexa built in. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. How about sushi? I just had sushi for lunch yesterday. How about tacos? Automatic emergency braking, one of six advanced safety features standard on every 2022 Chevy Equinox. Find new technology, find new roads, Chevrolet. Hi, I'm Teresa Griffin. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, so today's uh, Black and the Missing is Iyana Ferris. The Suffolk County, New York police need folks to be on the lookout for the 10-year-old Iyana Ferris, who they believe is trying to make her way to Georgia. Iyana was last seen Monday morning. She's five feet, seven, five feet uh, tall, weighs 76 pounds, with, with, as, has brown eyes and brownish blonde hair. She is possibly in need of medication. Anyone with information about Iyana Ferris should call the Suffolk County, New York Police Department at 631-8548552. 631-8548552. All right, folks. Uh, that's our black in missing. So there's a there's a lot of uh discussion taking place uh today uh with regards to the November elections. Uh, with regards to whether or not uh, President Joe Biden is going to be seeking re-election in 2024, uh, all these different things. We've got races happening today uh, in Illinois, in South Carolina, in New York State, uh, and goes on and on and on. And obviously because of the Supreme Court's decision on Friday, Roe v. Wade uh, is uh, a part of the conversation right now. But the question that uh, that, that goes out is, um, obviously, will that be enough to be able uh, to get people to turn out? Uh, there are a variety of decisions that we're going to be looking at. The, of course, the Supreme Court is also going to be weighing in on a crucial environmental decision that many believe that they're going to shank the EPA, just pretty much gut the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of these things. Um, Mustafa, let's start with you 
on this. So, so explain to people uh, this case that the Supreme Court uh, is going to be ruling on. Many expect them uh, to, to, to rule in a way that will be devastating to the environment. Yeah. Well, I think you're talking about West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, and it's an important case because mm -hmm. it's focusing on uh, coal-fired power plants. Um, but in, in, in more particularity, it is also talking about if the Environmental Protection Agency has the right to set the regulations around this or if the states will. And the problem with that is that we know that there are a number of states uh, who have not uh, done what's necessary uh, to help us to not only address the climate crisis, but also to address these disproportionate impacts that happen in vulnerable communities. We know that the majority of African-Americans, a vast majority, actually live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. We also understand that the exposures and emissions that come from this cause heart and, and liver and kidney diseases and also asthma. And we know that we've got 24 million folks in our country and 7 million kids who have asthma, and that in many instances, a lot of folks are losing their lives, and kids can't even learn when they have these exposures and then these asthma attacks that are going on, and a number of other public health impacts. So all that being said is that we need to truly have a, a, a complete social safety net. Um, and if the Supreme Court knocks this down, it just begins the first domino um, around these coal-fired power plants, because... Uh, the preceding sets of actions may take away uh, EPA's uh, ability to be able to regulate a number of other uh, impacts that are happening uh, across our country. Um, the, the thing here, uh, Avis, that I think that people have to understand, there are a lot of individuals uh, who simply thought, oh, the courts will protect us. What we're now seeing with this 6-3 majority, they don't care. They now have the votes. Even if one of them, Chief Justice John Roberts, chooses not to go along, solid five votes, they can run the table. This is what, so now, not only Roe v. Wade, not only the environment, not only voting rights. I mean, we could go on and on and on. This is, this is the conservative dream that they have been waiting for. It certainly is. You know, I'm old enough to remember complaints from the right about judicial activism uh, and talking about how an activist court is out of hand and how you shouldn't be legislating from the bench. You know, they would describe anything that had to do with expanding rights as judicial activism. Here we are in the midst of judicial activism in its purest form. It's really interesting to see this court run roughshod over the rights of women and people generally in terms of decisions that have already been made and decisions that will be made coming down the pike. You know, and to hear the hypocrisy, for example, of a Clarence Thomas who comes out and basically says, let's not only gut Roe, let's go after gay rights, let's go after contraception, let's go uh, after peeping into grown folks' bedrooms to see what sexual acts they are engaging in. But let's not touch interracial marriage because I happen to be married in an interracial marriage. The hypocrisy of it shows you that this has nothing to do with the law. This has to do with their specific political agenda, and they are hell-bent on advancing that agenda come hell or high water in the future. And this is why we have for so long talked about on the show how important it is for the left to really get 
that these appointments to the Supreme Court and below, lifetime appointments, have huge generations-long impacts on our lives. And now that we're here with this 6-3 disparity, unless this court is expanded, we are in a situation where literally our grandchildren may still have to contend with all of the damage that this specific court is going to do. You know, Demario, I always talk about on this show how we have to connect the dots. And, and, and this is a perfect example for the people who don't understand politics. And that is uh, the individual that you vote for, the individual uh, that you vote for president, uh, that's who is going to appoint Supreme Court justices. The individual that you vote for in the United States Senate, those are the people who are going to vote on, confirm, or reject Supreme Court justices, federal judges as well. And so I, I just think that a lot of people who are out here and they're going, well, I'm not going to vote or, or I don't, or uh, they, they don't, uh, I don't like their position on this whole issue. I mean, do understand that you can sit on the sidelines, not a problem, but you're going to get the type of government that you will get when you're not actually involved. I had somebody uh, who tweeted me the other day and they were talking about uh, Gen Z's. And I said, why? I said, I said, I don't understand why millennials and Gen Z's keep complaining about baby boomers like Joe Biden. I said, if y'all vote y'all numbers, y'all can run the election. She's like, oh, no, no, we turned out in 2020. I said, no, you didn't. I said, you turned out. There was an increase. I said, I'm talking about voting your numbers. And that's really the whole issue here. How do you vote your numbers for African-Americans? We shouldn't have a situation where you got 30, 40 percent turnout. Uh, New York State today is going to have awful turnout. This is a perfect example. When you vote your numbers and everybody else is low, you can run the table. But you got to actually yeah, vote. You yeah, I, I have a, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you on that. You know, you're talking to someone here in Oklahoma where it's gerrymandered to death. It does not matter how I vote in the federal elections. I exercise my right to vote. I think it's very important. I think what's most important in this particular moment, though, is the people that are in power are not exercising their power. Where is the Congressional uh, Congress with the impeachment? of Clarence Thomas and those other justices that lied under oath. Where is the impeachment proceedings of Clarence Thomas Look, and his wife hold on, hold on, hold on, being in insurrection? Con where is, where is Joe Con Biden Con hold up, on his bully hold up, hold up, DeMario, 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 no, no, hold up, DeMario, DeMario, wait, wait, hold up. If we're going to put something out, let's be factual. Congress cannot impeach Clarence Thomas. Why not? So when you're saying where's, no, 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 hold up, hold up, because here's part of the problem. The Supreme Court, first of all, the Supreme Court doesn't have an ethics. You don't have you don't have you don't have an ethics situation set up. That's first. Now, can you can you impeach federal judges? Yes, you can. But you can't impeach Jenny Thomas. She doesn't hold a political office. No, I know that, but I'm talking about her. I'm talking about Clarence Thomas, who's making these decisions that my sister talked about earlier, wanting to get rid of not only Roe right. versus Wade and all these other rights. Where, where is the congressional members right now? All they keep saying is, give us two more senators. Give us two more senators. But I'm old enough, as my sister said, to remember when the Obama administration had 60 senators, and they still said they didn't have enough senators. They always want to move the ball. The only thing that they did after Roe versus Wade, after having two no. months... 
two months knowing that this was coming out was go out and sing songs on the on the steps of the Capitol and send out fundraising emails. I didn't, this is ridiculous. And so for people to say, well, you just got to vote harder, I reject that. Yes, people no, want to no, get no, out. No, 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 no. See, again, DeMario, Madonna, you're leaving out some of this factually. You're, you're wrong. You're not letting me finish. The House. How can I get in everything I'm trying to get DeMario, in? DeMario. No, 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 DeMario. But if you're giving out factually incorrect information, for instance, the House has actually passed a bill dealing with reproductive rights. Avis okay. can tell you that. The House has actually passed. No, no, look. The, no, no, I, I no, 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 Demario. But when you say Congress, but when you, no, Demario, when you say Congress, that includes the House and the Senate. Be specific. Right. The House has done what you said, not the Senate. So don't say Congress. Say no, no, the no, Senate. No, 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 no. House. You weren't listening. What I said. Where is Congress? The House right now bringing these judges in, finding ways to rein this in, bringing to the, the House floor to expand the Supreme Court. They haven't put that on the House floor. It may not pass in the Senate, but they need to be showing their constituency and their base that we're willing to fight as hard as we need to for the things that we can control. The House is not doing that. And and certainly uh, the president is not doing that. I mean, the things he said at the end of his speech on Friday was, I want to leave you with, you must be peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. These people are ripping apart people's rights each and every day. As the sister stated earlier, this is things that our grandchildren will be dealing with while we sit here in real time and watch this. This is like being in Germany in 1933, 1934, 1935, and just seeing things ripped apart, ripped apart, ripped apart. The congressional leaders are not acting strong enough. They tweet, they go on TV, they send out fundraising emails, but they're not utilizing every tool in their bag, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. And again, in order for you to do that, what you have to have is you got to have the votes. And if you don't have the votes, what you do is politically, and this is also being smart politically, what you do is you don't set yourself up to lose. So part of the issue that you're now dealing with is, and again, I can run these things down, Avis, the number of bills that have been passed in the House that are dead in the Senate. So when I hear people say, well, they aren't doing these things, there are a number of things that have been passed. Look, the, the domestic terrorism bill after Buffalo was passed in the House. It died in the Senate. So when we say what Congress is not doing, no, what the Senate is not doing, there are a number of things able to happen actually in the House. But, the, but, I, but see, I'm not only looking, see, and again, this is the key. This is the key. I'm not only talking about Congress. I'm also talking about what's happening on the state level. And when I look at voting numbers on the state level, I see the exact same thing. The point that I am making is when you, if we see folks voting our numbers, Avis, then you might see also a change in the very people who are in elected office. Part of the problem that we have right now is that people who are in office are in there because they were elected with low voter turnout. But Avis, if I just yeah, jump I, in, we've got to also factor in the Hold on, no, DeMario, 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 hold on. Avis, and I'll come back to you, but hold on, Avis. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. When you think about where the black population is concentrated, I know it may not make much of a difference in terms of the number of black people in Oklahoma, okay? But if you're looking at places like 
Georgia, like Pennsylvania, uh, even New Mexico. I mean, these key states that were key in that last election, and Texas, as we're growing there, let me just say, there are key states where when we maximize our vote, we have tremendous power. I completely agree with that. But I also want to say that the biggest mistake that I see the Democratic Party making right now, and we know that we're in this conundrum where the, the House can do all sorts of things, but it's not, it's going to die in the Senate. Okay, we know that's the reality right now. What they are aren't doing, though, is utilizing their bully pulpit. Uh, we don't see enough uh, of, of Biden utilizing his bully pulpit. When things like when things happen, like what has been happening this entire time with the Republican Party, and particularly as a result of Roe, you know, you know, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, uh, you would see McConnell have a press conference. You would see all sorts of um, unified messaging with Republican lawmakers all over television repeating the same talking points, repeating the same sound bites. You don't have that level of concerted effort and strategy with regards to messaging to rally the base among the Democratic Party that you do with the Republican Party. And I think that this is also connected with a lack of enthusiasm in terms of making sure that their base actually does come out and maximize their voting power. I see this all as being connected. If the Democrats were better at messaging, if the Democrats were better at fighting, I agree with that, if the Democrats were better at really showing some sort of emotional, powerful reaction to this crazy moment that we're in right now, this, I mean, they're acting like this is politics as usual. This is not. Politics as usual. This is not normal. I mean, I want to see them acting like the world is on fire because it is. And if they continue to try to think about this from the sort of intellectual standpoint that Democrats normally approach things from, you are not going to engage and fire up your base to the degree that you need to at a moment like this in order to make the difference that we need to make in the polls in November and beyond at the national level or the state and local level. All of it's important, but you have to really make people want to go out there and fight, and they are not rallying the troop. They're not living up to this moment to the degree that they need to. Facts. But, but this, is why I'm, this is why I'm making this point, Mustafa, because I look at the Poor People's Campaign. It's one thing to hold news conferences and complain and to say what should be done, it's another thing to actually go out and knock on the doors to actually mobilize and organize the people to begin mm -hmm. to have a shift, begin to have a change. And what I am saying is, if you are in a place and, it ain't, and the cavalry ain't coming, then the question is, what is at your disposal? And what mm -hmm. I'm suggesting is, all across this country, cities and counties, various states, what we're also seeing is we're seeing people who are frustrated. We're seeing people who say, I want to see stuff get done. You can't get Jack done unless you have the votes. Now, Ron Kirkman, who's the mayor of Dallas, told me that all the time. Ron said, I can count votes. He said, you can come to City Hall bitching and yelling and screaming all you want to. But if I look around the table, he said, and there's 12 people and I got nine mm -hmm. votes. Y'all can yell, holler, scream all you want to. I got the nine votes. And so there's a difference between being pissed off 
and emotional and being strategic and organized. And what mm -hmm. I am offering is if you are pissed off and angry and emotional, but you got no strategy, you have no organization, you have no mobilization, all you are is pissed off. Now, if you're on the flip side where all you are concerned about is raising money and being as bland as possible, you're going you're gonna to have a whole issue with being able to turn people out. What I am still saying across the board, that what is absolutely needed for us, I can't speak for nobody else, is for us to say, wait a minute. If the last election, that person got elected and only 14% of all eligible voters turned out and they suck, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to figure out how to get another 16% to turn out and put them out of office. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandmother says you have power unless you give it away. One of the victories that Republicans have had is that they've uh, played a role in convincing people that they don't have power. There are all these examples of how when you actually mobilize folks, when you build structures, uh, infrastructures, and have a strategic plan uh, of how change can happen. You mentioned uh, the Poor People's Campaign. Let's go back to the More Mondays movement there in North Carolina when folks said that, you know, that you could never make changes there in North Carolina. Reverend Barber and a whole lot uh, of community-based folks and others came together to be able to make change begin to happen there in North Carolina. I was with Indigenous brothers and sisters earlier today, uh, and we were talking about how they helped to play a role there in New Mexico. I believe Avis had, had mentioned New Mexico um, uh, and yep. be helping to, to actually flip that. Uh, by getting folks together. Now, they did also raise that we got to have more resources going in to get even more folks in their community together. But all that goes back to the fact that we can make change happen, but we have to, one, be strategic. That's why this show is so important. From the earliest days of being on this show, one of the things we kept raising to folks is that Republicans have a strategic plan that they have been playing out for decades, uh, and that Democrats one, have to do a much better job of connecting with folks, getting resources them, but to also understand that dynamics can actually change. Um, and we do a disservice. We do such a disservice when we put out there that voting doesn't matter. Voting matters on the local level, the county, and the state level. If you want to actually address what's happening around gerrymandering and redistricting, then you got to get people mobilized to vote on that state level to be able to play a role in helping to make change happen. If you're not doing that, and if you continue to say, well, you know what, I, don't, I can't find nobody who represents what I stand for, and, and ain't nobody focusing on issues I care about. Well, my question every time somebody says that is, why aren't you running for office yourself? Why don't you run on the local or the county, the state level? Or, or if you have the ability, why not get enough folks together so you can run on the federal level? So if you're saying that, then you have a responsibility to do something in that space. Because if you want to see change happen, it starts with each and every one of us, and then we build it out by bringing other people in. And that's why, going back to the poor people's campaign, of making sure that everyone who's focusing on their commonalities, so those, those points that everybody can get behind, and then building from there, honoring each other, supporting each other in an authentic way. And when we don't do that, we are just as responsible for some of these things that we see going on as those who are trying to destroy our communities and to strip power away from us. The unfortunate issue that I'm looking at, DeMario, is again, we got a lot of people who are angry, pissed, and emotional, but they have no plan.
Well, I think there's a lot of people that are angry, pissed, and emotional, and, they, and they, they're looking for leadership. They're looking for leadership to stand up and show them what the plan is. Like, everybody is not a leader, and everybody is not going to lead organizations like all of us on this panel. Everyone doesn't have uh, the experience, the connections, the wealth to be able to run for office. Some people are looking for leadership, and I'm not going to castigate anyone who feels a little dejected in this moment because they're looking around and don't see anybody actually leading and fighting on their behalf. All of us fight even every single day. And as a civil rights attorney that is based in Oklahoma to take cases all over this nation, I understand that sometimes a win is not necessarily getting the ultimate victory. The win is just doing the fight. And that's what people are looking for. That's why people gravitate to Reverend Barber, because he's fighting. That's why people gravitate to this show, because you're fighting. But we cannot just cascade and talk about talk bad about people not wanting to vote. Look, when I went down to Texas back in 2018, to do voter protection uh, for the NAACP down there. I went to Waco, flew down to Waco, and you get down there and you see these, these voting districts for black organizations or black communities where they have two or three voting machines and people got to wait in line four and five hours and you go right across town to the white voting districts and they just walk in and walk out. That stuff is real. So understanding that that is real, we have to give people real incentives of why they believe people are going to fight on their behalf when they are elected. So yes, we want everybody to get out to vote. Yes, we want people to be more passionate and, and to get the numbers up. But we cannot give excuses for those who are in power right now. I remember everyone saying about Georgia, if we get these two seats in Georgia, if we get Roanoke and, um, and uh, Ossoff elected, we can get our agenda passed. That is what Joe Biden said to everyone. Everyone believed that, and he has not come through on it, and it's okay for people to be upset about that. But, Roland, First of Roland, all, let me just... there's no... Go, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is not a hit-it-and-quit it situation. You have got to have consistency... Uh, and, um, and our mobilization uh, and yes. our activation to be able to get this stuff achieved. And we keep thinking that because we get somebody in for one term. I mean, when you look at our brother Warnock, it's not like he's been in for six years, right? I'm, he, not, he, I'm not disparaging uh, brother Warnock. And I'm, I, we all understand yeah. that this is a long-term play. This is something that people have to show up all the time. But the moment right now when it is, for me, I am dealing with this stuff every single day. I mean, this impacts all of us, but this impacts my clients specifically as these rights are being rolled away right in front of our face. I do not see enough passion. I do not see enough fight. I do not see enough resources being pushed down to black communities and black organizations to do the get out to broke. People like Latasha Brown and other organizations like my man Frank White with Black Men Vote. These are people that I'm in contact with, consulting with, supporting right now. They're not getting the resources to get our community out there. That's because of Democrats Roland, you said the Republicans don't care about us. At this point, the Democrats have not proven that either. Well, I'm not going to try and defend well, see, again, the though, Democrats. Again, and, and, and again, though, well, for, for, first of all, what you're doing is, see, you're having a Democratic-Republican conversation. I'm not. Well, you said, you said the Republicans a grassroots. Have proven they don't care about us. I no, think we need to be clear. No, 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 First of all, you don't have to be in my mind. You literally heard me say it. 
I was specifically talking about the Supreme Court decision today regarding the second black majority district in Louisiana. That's what I was talking about. What I'm talking about on this segment right here is if we're talking about how do we change politics, what I'm saying is you have never seen politicians lead movements. No, movement leaders do so. What we have right now, you have right now organizations out there that are actually doing it. But what I am saying to people who are watching and to people who are listening is that if you actually want to see change, do understand that is going to have to be driven by the people. And if we also vote our numbers, what cannot happen is when you have perfect example, and I used it before, when you had black turnout, there was a, a significant number in North Carolina in 2008 when Obama was elected, and then in 2010, the midterms, it dropped significantly, and then in 2012 and 2014, it dropped even more so. What I am arguing is when we mobilize and organize our numbers, we can truly affect change. So what I'm trying to get people to do is stop complaining and align with entities. And so if you are in a state right now, you should say, reach out to the Poor People's Campaign in that state. Reach out to Black Voters Matter uh, in that particular state. There are entities who are doing the work. I'm trying to get us to go from being pissed off to being proactive and organized and mobilized. That's what I'm talking about. Dichotomy. I agree. Everything you said, I agree 100%. But I don't think there. I think you can be pissed off and get organized. I think we need to be pissed off and get organized. That's the only thing. Well, I'm first of all, fine. You can. Yes, you can be pissed off and organized. My, what I'm saying is, but being pissed off don't change shit. You've got to have the organized part to go along with it. I agree. I agree with that. And the problem is, I, it's a bunch of people walking around who are solely pissed off, and again, the numbers reflect it. The numbers reflect it. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't... And I that's don't what disagree. I'm saying. I don't disagree with your basic premise. So, uh, but I know you want to move on, so I don't want to be able to point. I don't want to hog up all the... Well, no, 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 no. First of all, no, no, first of all, no, 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 no. First of all, my, my next guest is actually, my next guest is actually traveling, so I got to go to him. So let me do this here. Let me quickly go to the break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about right here. Louisiana should have a second majority black congressional district. The courts rule that it was racial gerrymandering. Now, this conservative Supreme Court is invalidating that. We'll tell you more about it, folks. It's, it's shameful, but this is what happens when this court now is pretty much saying racial gerrymandering is just fine. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered Broadcasting live from New Orleans on the Black Star Network. Verizon just gave us all a brand new iPhone 13. We've been customers for years. I thought new phones were for new customers. We got iPhone 13s too, switched to Verizon two minutes ago. Ours were busted, and we still got a shiny new one. Check it out. So wait, everybody gets the same great deal. I think that's the point. iPhone 13 on us for every customer. Current, new, everyone on any unlimited plan, starting at just $35. All on the network more people rely on. Love our new Alexa. It's a Buick. Yeah, Alexa. Buick. Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. Coach, that's a Buick. That's an Alexa. The Buick Enclave with available Alexa built in. 
On the next A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie, we're talking all things mental health and how helping others can help you. We all have moments where we have struggles. And on this week's show, our guests demonstrate how helping others can also help you. Why you should never stop giving and serving others on a next A Balanced Life here on Black Star Network. How about sushi? I just had sushi for lunch yesterday. How about tacos? Automatic emergency braking, one of six advanced safety features standard on every 2022 Chevy Equinox. Find new technology, find new roads, Chevrolet. Next on The Black Table with me, Greg Carr. A very different take on Juneteenth with the one and only Dr. Sunyata Ahmed. We'll explore the amazing foods, remedies and rituals that are a part of our history and the Juneteenth holiday. So it's our responsibility to return the healthier version to our folks instead of just the red liqueurs marketed to us, the red sodas and the other things. I mean, why does the Kool-Aid man have to sound like Louis Armstrong? He's like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah right. That's the- An enlightening and tasty hour of the Black Table, only on the Black Star Network. How y'all doing? It's your favorite funny girl, Amanda Seals. Hi, I'm Anthony Brown from Anthony Brown and Group Therapy. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. Folks, earlier today, I chatted with uh, Louisiana Congressman uh, Troy Carter. He is the only African-American in the Louisiana congressional delegation. Well, a district judge ruled that Louisiana, uh, what they were packing black voters into one district, say, basically racial gerrymandering, and that Louisiana African-Americans deserve to have a second majority black district. The state is more than one-third African-American, yet what, the, what lawmakers do is basically pack them into one black district right there, as you see in that blue. There are six congressional districts in Louisiana. Only one is African-American. Well, the district court ruled that there was enough time to create a second district and redraw the maps because Louisiana does not hold its primaries until later in the year. We'll explain that. But the Supreme Court has actually issued a stay of that ruling, which, which stipulates that the, um, the, the, the maps Republicans have drawn in Louisiana will stay in, in, uh, uh, stay in place, and so therefore you won't have this second black district. This is one of their shadow decisions where there were no oral arguments, but they basically made the decision without having to actually be on the record with their questions. Joining me right now is someone who knows Louisiana politics uh, very, very well, uh, professor uh, there uh, at uh, Dillard, Dr. Robert Collins. Uh, glad to have you on the show. So, Doc, you deal with political science, you look at these things right here. I mean, this is a perfect example of largely, look, I'm going to call it white Republican rule, yeah, even with Clarence Thomas, uh, that this is what happens when you have Republican conservatives who control the Supreme Court, who they've been validated and gutted the Voting Rights Act. What they are essentially allowing is racial gerrymandering to move forward. Yes, you know, uh, Roland, what's, what's interesting about this is that um, after uh, the... The district court judge ruled that it was that that the current uh, map that 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 the the Republican majority legislature passed was a violation uh, of the Voting Rights Act, and she ordered them to create uh, 
two districts, two black majority districts, which they refused to do. Um, the, the judge basically almost threatened to hold them in contempt of court, but they refused. Um, then, then they appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And interestingly enough, the, the Fifth Circuit refused to stay her order. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, mind you, which is which is uh, which any uh, lawyer will tell you is the most conservative court of appeal in the United States. And and the panel that that heard the case was a was a Republican majority panel, actually uh, left the current maps in place. They they refused to stay the order, and they actually scheduled a hearing for uh, July eighth. So we we were waiting for um, for the judge uh, tomorrow. Actually, she was going to issue her two maps, and then there was going to be a full hearing July eighth. Before the, um, the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is the you know the standard way that that which is the standard process, um, but then because the 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 leadership of the legislature filed an emergency appeal uh, with the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court basically decided that they were going to bigfoot the situation, that they were going to come in, they were going to um, without a hearing, without a hearing, they were going to overrule both the district judge. And the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and that they were just going to, you know, basically cancel the the, the two uh, majority black districts, leave in place the current maps, which only has one majority black district, um, and and they scheduled a hearing. Well, and and they put the case on the docket uh, for next term. Um, but but let's let's not kid ourselves. We we know how they're going to rule. In, in advance, I don't. I, I'm not going to sit here and give anybody any hope that that uh, the, the 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 two black majority districts are going to receive a fair or impartial hearing uh, from this court. That's that's just not going to happen. It's gonna it's gonna be a six six to three vote, and I and I'll predict that now very comfortably. And if anybody wants to put a bet on that, we can we can put a bet on that. Yeah. So it's it's very disturbing. That that the court would actually, with with everything it has to do, would actually step into this this Louisiana case when it really didn't need to. It, it could have just let due process play out, but 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 they chose. They yeah, chose but, but 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 see, but see, but, but 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 Robert, but Robert, look, let's keep in mind this is the exact same Supreme Court where overturning Roe v. Wade was not on the agenda. Like, literally, that was not a part of the Mississippi case. The state of Mississippi wasn't asking for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. This Supreme Court chose to go even further. And so when I hear Republicans complain about, oh, Democratic judges being activist judges, this is a perfect example of activist judges with them not allowing lower courts to do their job. They decided, oh, damn that, we shutting this down. Oh, oh yeah, and and I've I've told people people say this is a conservative court. I said no, this is an activist court. This is a this is an activist right wing court. They they this is an activist right wing court. Um, they they get involved in cases. You know they you know they always uh, use uh, the cases before them um, to rule on on a bunch of different social issues that that aren't even in the case. And, and you're right, in the Mississippi case, they they could have upheld the constitutionality. Um, of 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 the Mississippi law, left the Mississippi law in place and been totally silent on Roe versus Wade. And interestingly enough, that's what the chief justice wanted to do. The chief justice, who was very conservative, wanted to just uh, you know just leave the Mississippi law in place. And and in you know in his opinion, he said he believes in taking a more uh, incremental view. 
Um, but but the you know the five ultra conservatives they don't really believe in 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 a in an incremental view. They saw this the chance to the, this was their chance to take out Roe v. Wade, so they took it out. They you know they just took it out. And 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 I think we're going to see. Um, and and as I wrote in one of my tweets earlier today, this is um, this current majority conservative majority of the Supreme Court has made it very clear that now they're going to be very aggressive in taking the hammer to their opposition and they're going to be pretty ruthless about it so i think we better we better buckle up it's it's going to be a bumpy ride yeah and this is why w w the previous segment i was talking about why we got to mobilize and organize to vote uh the the, the reality is this uh and 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 i i don't care yeah i know what people said in in 2000 uh, in 2020, we were talking about elect Warnock and Ossoff, but I also knew if you elected Warnock and Ossoff, you would still be at 50-50. The reality is this here. Uh, if Mandela Barnes becomes a U.S. senator in Wisconsin, if Fetterman wins in Pennsylvania, if Sherrod Beasley wins in North Carolina, it's now 53-47. If all of a sudden we get aggressive, and I keep saying black people, look, if Democrats actually, or if, even if outside groups register black people in Louisiana, look, I know people may th sound crazy, you can flip that U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana. Hey, call me, call me nuts, but John Bell Edwards won in this state by 30,000 votes. The bottom line is, is here, you have to activate the people. Look, you've got Booker in Kentucky, you've got uh, Demings uh, in, uh, you got Demings uh, in Florida, you've got Tim Ryan in Ohio. So potentially, Democrats could be 53-47, 54-46, and now all of a sudden, these things we're talking about, you, you can now codify them. Look, you don't have to wait for the Voting Rights Act. You can literally now change the law. But you have to, you have to break the log jam with these people who think, oh, we can't, can't get rid of the filibuster. Damn that. This court is making it clear that they are going to do the bidding of Republicans and try to return everything to states' rights. And we know if we're living in red states, we are screwed. Sure. And, and, and let's be clear. Um, if the Republicans get control of the United States Senate, they will shut down all judicial appointments. Mitch McConnell has been very clear about that. If he gets the majority, it's over. I mean, not not just uh, not not only will Biden not get any more Supreme Court appointments, assuming someone retires before then, which they probably won't, but he won't get that. Um, Biden won't get any more of his district or 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 appellate judges. Uh, through, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is basically going to shut all that down. Um, you know, and, and I know we focus, when we look at judicial appointments, I know we focus on who, who the president is, and it's obviously it's important to control the White House, but as I've been saying for years, and let me say, I'm a, I'm a former U.S. Senate staffer, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of biased toward the Senate. You have to control the Senate. The, pro the current problems on the Supreme Court were not, control were not caused by not controlling the White House. I mean, the, the Democrats, at the end of the current term, you know, the, 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 the Democrats will have held the White House for, for 12 of the last 16 years. The issue was they didn't control the United States Senate. And so the reason why Barack Obama was not allowed to put his final appointment on the court was because the Republicans controlled the Senate and they were able to block it. The reason why Donald Trump was able to get a, uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett um, on the Supreme Court just a few days before the end of his term is because the, the Republicans 
you know, controlled the court, and the Democrats could not stop that from being rammed through. You know, I mean, Donald Trump should have had one Supreme Court appointment. Normally, presidents get one. Sometimes they get two during a term. To, to get two, you normally have to serve two terms. He got three. He, he should have only gotten one. He got three. He basically stole two. He stole two because the, the Republicans control the Senate, and the Republicans are very cutthroat and vicious in, in, in ramming, in, in either blocking the Democrats' picks or, or in ramming uh, their picks through, um, basically in, in defiance of the will of the American people. Um, you, know, you, know, to, you, know, the, you know, the reason why um, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell said that he didn't let Barack Obama have his pick is because, oh, we have to let the American people vote on it. They have to decide. But then, of course, at the end of Trump's term, um, when uh, uh, when Justice Ginsburg died, he didn't let the American people have their say. Then he just basically shut down the democratic process and said, "No, we're gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna have our, uh, we're, we're gonna put our person on the court." So he's very, I mean, he's not, he's very ruthless and he's very cutthroat. And and so yes, um, holding on to the United States Senate, and as you said, not just holding on to it, but but getting, uh, getting two, three, four seats. Is vital um, if if you're going to be able to you know not not only make inroads into making sure we have a more fair uh, overall federal judiciary, but but as you said, being able to codify some of these laws so that we don't have to depend on the Supreme Court to protect people's rights. Uh, questions uh, from my panel. I'll start with you, Avis. Yeah. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I completely, I'm really interested in your perspective around the Senate, specifically given your, your background there. Uh, when you think about what's going on right now and uh, what will happen in the midterms, you know, what are the things, what do you think are the chances uh, that we will get enough uh, turnover in the Senate in the Democratic direction to be able to overcome uh, those people who have stood in the way this time, which is why we needed more than a 50-51 majority to pull things through. We had these conservative Democrats who were unwilling to stand up for key pieces of legislation. Do you think that there are enough seats that are shaky enough uh, that Democrats might actually win enough uh, new seats in the Senate in order to have at least that 53, 54, even maybe that we need to to get past the mansions of the world. It's it's going to be tight, uh, you know, because of course the Democrats have to hold everything they have now. They can't lose anything, and then they need to flip a few seats. Um, Roland's probably more uh, uh, optimistic than me. I mean, I, I think they can hold everything they have now. But you know, I, I think flipping Florida is it possible? Yes, it's is, but it's going to be tough. The turnout has. Oh no no no, has, no 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 no! Remember, I named. Uh, now remember, I, uh, I named three that I actually have at the top: Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Then okay. after that, I think I think Ohio is is next. That's still going to be hard. I think the hard ones are obviously Florida, Kentucky, Louisiana. But 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 the reason the, the, but the reason I was talking earlier about the organizing piece, a Democrat was elected governor in Kentucky, a Democrat is elected governor in Louisiana. I'm saying that for a reason that you have to put in the work to beat them. There are too many Democrats who right now are going, oh, it's Louisiana. We can't beat John. We we can't beat Kennedy. Well, if you never actually try, you're guaranteed to lose. Same thing with book with Booker versus Rand Paul. 
I'm looking at two states that ran, yes, white male, white male governors, but there's still Democrats in red states. But you got to make the effort. So what, what I've been saying is if you hold Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, those are four Democrats must hold. The three pickups, I believe, and the polling data right now shows Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and then that next one is Ohio. And then I think you get to Florida, Kentucky, Louisiana. Yeah, I, I think Pennsylvania is definitely doable. Um, Wisconsin is doable. North Carolina is doable. Yeah, then it then it gets uh, then it gets tough after that. Um, uh, Louisiana gets is gets especially tough. I mean, you'd have to have really high turnout, and you have to get some working class whites to come over. I mean, you know, you know, Roland. Twenty years ago, when I you know when I used to work in the Senate, I worked for a guy named Bennett Johnston, um, you know, Southern Democrat. We used to be able to, uh, you know, rely on about 40 percent of the white vote. Obviously, we got we always got 95 percent, 96, 97, 98 percent of the black vote. But we won because we were always we were always able to get about 40 percent of the of the white vote. And so we didn't need the majority of the white vote. We just needed 40 percent. Now, um, you right. know, somebody. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. You, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'll disagree okay. with you. Now I'm 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 saying um, I said right now have somebody like John Bell Edwards who's a very conservative Democrat, he barely breaks thirty percent of the white vote. I mean he won the governor's race because he was able to hang on to about thirty one thirty thirty one thirty two percent of the white vote. Right, that's pretty much the that's that's the threshold. You you dip below thirty percent of the white vote as a Democrat, you're gone. So, you know, so it's it's so, 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 Robert. So, so, Robert, here's my point. That's my point. If you so if you know you about if you, you got to get 30, which then means you have to then say, I, so what's the number? Uh, uh, Gary Chambers was on. He told us, is it 300,000 unregistered blacks in Louisiana? Yeah, it's about about that. It's it's uh, several hundred. Then several. what you got to do is if, if I'm at 30, about 30 percent. I know as I get a whites, then I've got to increase my black, my, my first of all, my eligible black voters, my eligible Latino voters. And so I got to put the resources there. And, that, and, and that's what I'm saying that continues to be part of the problem in terms of the calculus. What, what they don't do, because I remember Chris Van Hollen, I remember in 2012, they, they didn't get with this when he was in the Congress, he was in the House. They didn't give a damn I put money in Georgia. And they, and they kept saying, yo, we can actually flip it. And so what I'm arguing is that if we know that's going to be the threshold there, we have to maximize our turnout. And when we do that, then we're able to sit here and offset with the numbers that we know we're not going to get. But what can happen is that that Democrat getting 30 percent and black being right here, hell, you're guaranteed to lose. So yeah, something yeah. has to change because you got to go out and get your votes from somewhere. I mean, I mean, J John Bell Edwards, you know, he banked on only getting about 31 32 percent of the white vote, but but he was able to mobilize the black vote very effectively and get people to the polls. So yeah, so you gotta you gotta hold on to that 30 percent of the white vote and then and then be able to mobilize the black vote and and get people to the polls. Uh, there's there's no question about it. A question from Mustafa. Yeah, Robert, I'm curious. You know, we, we have this conversation about uh, resources. I'm curious, from your perspective, where should we be making better investments to be able to win? 
Well, uh, you mean as far as candidates or, or, or you mean as far as organizing or uh, media? Well, the, say you know, we often, talk, we, often, we often talk about infrastructure um, and, and the lack of funding that often happens for our organizations that are actually out there on the ground. There's another uh, a theory or paradigm where we should be you know, better resourcing candidates. So I'm con I'm just interested in where you think resources should be going to maximize uh, the, the vote. Well, I, I, I do think we need uh, resources to go into voter registration. Uh, as, you know, as Roland just said, you know, it's, it's really unacceptable that, that we have hundreds of thousands of unregistered black voters in the state of Louisiana. That's 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 a disconnect right there. That's that's a resource that you can't you can't win without. So I think uh, we need to put more resource uh, into organizations that actually and and it's really in the rural areas. We 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 do okay in the urban areas because we have a lot of grassroots organizations here. We can piggyback with grassroots organizations. We need folks to drive out into the rural areas and register the 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 working class rural black folks. I think that's the that's the first place I would I would put money. I mean, if I had, you know, if I had unlimited money to spend, um, I mean, as far as putting money into re into recruiting candidates, I think we have a good set of candidates. I mean, you know, I, I think we we have good candidates running, um, you know, in the U.S. Senate. I think we ha I, I I just think what's scared we have we have many fine candidates that serve in the Louisiana legislature that I personally would think make fine United States senators, very articulate, highly educated. You know, Ivy League educated folks that serve in the Louisiana legislature. I don't. That it, it's not that we have a dearth of, of candidates. It's that the candidates sitting in the legislature they look at, you know, somebody like uh, you know John Kennedy sitting on top of fourteen million dollars, and they said, well, you know, we we can't we can't top that. How how are we? You know, he's he basically has an unlimited campaign fund. We're not gonna you know we're not gonna be able to knock him off. So there's you know there's there's no point. In, in, in us putting the money into challenging him. And of course, when you're in a state like Louisiana, Louisiana, the, the, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which is the, the who, who allocates, which is the incumbent, which is the campaign committee run by incumbent U.S. senators that allocates how the national money is going to go, um, their position is Louisiana is not in play. So they don't really want to send any of their national money down to Louisiana because they're going to say, oh, well, it's taking money away from Pennsylvania. It's taking money away from Wisconsin. We have, uh, you know, we, we have limited funds. We can't, we can't give you money to run an immediate down there. But, um, you know, but, but the bottom line is this, um, you know, if I had, I mean, if I had to, or, or let me put it this way, if I had to prioritize it, if I had, if you gave me a million dollars and say, Bob, that's all you have. I don't have, only have, only have a million dollars, can't spend anything else. That's not really enough to spend on media. What would I spend it on? I would spend it on um, sending folks into black rural districts to uh, to register black blacks to vote, and then to make sure we could get them to the polls on election day. That you know, because right right now having 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 hundreds of thousands of black folks unregistered in the state of Louisiana is is just not acceptable. I mean that that's an insult to to all of the the folks that died in the civil rights movement. To give people the right to vote. As I keep saying, organize and mobilize. Demario, your question. Now, I really enjoy listening to you and your insights, brother. I'm very interested to ask you two questions 
dealing with judges. It's something I'm working on currently. I was very disappointed. I had a conversation with a high-ranking government official in D.C. a couple weeks ago that the Dick Durbin, Senator Dick Durbin, is still recognizing the blue slip uh, policy. And therefore, like here in Oklahoma, we have uh, two, maybe three judicial uh, openings. And we are telling the Biden administration, please appoint someone, appoint someone, appoint someone. And we're being told, well, they got to get the sign off of our two Trump Republican senators who never going to sign off on anyone that we would want in, in play. So that's my first question. Can you explain to the people what the blue slip process is and why is it that the Senate that is controlled by the Democrats are still adhering to that? That's my first question. Okay, so the, the blue slip process just means that um, if you are a member of the United States Senate, uh, you, you have final approval uh, over any uh, judicial nominees that come from your state. So it, it doesn't really matter if the president is a, is a different uh, party than you. Um, you, can, you can basically freeze that nominee just by turning in your blue slip um, to the majority leader. So now, you know, now, now let's be fair. The, 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 the Democrats use those blue slips too. So when, when there's, when there's a Republican president, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Democrats turn in their blue slips if, if there's someone they, they disapprove of. It's one of those arcane U.S. Senate rules that don't make any sense that it's not in the Constitution. It's not, it's not in any statute. It's literally purely written into Senate internal rules. So it could be changed at any time by, by majority vote, by majority vote, just like the filibuster could be done away with at any time just by majority vote, by, by majority vote. But I think the reason why the Democrats have not gotten rid of it is because, well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> even if they wanted to, Cinema uh, uh, and Manchin wouldn't go along with it since they believe in, in, in these arcane rules. But honestly, I'm, I'm not even sure you could get even the majority of the Democrats um, to do away with the blue slip rule simply because um, they want to have that rule available to them when the Republicans are in power. And, and also, U.S. senators are just very protective about their states, and they want to, regardless of who's in the White House, they they want to have they want to have control over uh, the people the people who serve as district and appellate court judges in their home states. But isn't it, thank you so much for making it clear right, that it's then. just a rule, it's not a law. But isn't it true that during the Trump administration, the blue slip was ignored many times and the Trump administration was able to put forward unqualified candidates to be on the bench, young candidates, people had never even uh, tried a case, ever been in a courtroom. How was the Republicans able to do that and the Democrats are not? Well, simply because if they, they were. Actually, hold on, Robert. So remember, what you're not, what you're talking about is Robert just make the point. So, for instance, one of the people who was rated unqualified was a, was named in Florida. There are two Republican uh, judges, U.S. senators in Florida. So you didn't have a Democrat there. Now there was an example where the Republican senator in Wisconsin and the and the Democratic senator in in uh, the Democratic senator uh, from Wisconsin put in a blue slip and McConnell still ignored them for that judge. There have been examples where Dick Durbin has actually ignored a blue, blue slip from Republicans. So all of that has actually happened. Robert, go ahead. But, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about majority rule. You, you know, in, in, in order to, you know, to be able to, um, 
you know, I mean, in order to be able to stop unqualified judges from going through, you, you know, you have to, you know, you have to have the numbers. I mean, you, you know, you just, you know, you have to have the numbers. And, and, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, it's just, it's just majority rule. And, and if, and if the, um, and, and the Republicans have been, uh, you, you are correct, the Republicans have been, uh, you know, more, um, a little more brutal in, in, in following the rules when it uh, uh, when it when it serves their purposes, but ignoring the rule um, conveniently, you know, ignoring the rule when it uh, uh, when it when it when it does not serve their purpose. My, my second question, Roland, if I have time. All, is... all right, then. Uh, uh, and actually, 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 no, actually, we don't. Literally, my guest, okay. the next guest has been waiting uh, for about 10 minutes, and I got to go to the next guest. Robert Collins, always glad to have you, man. We appreciate Thank it. You. Uh, thanks for the knowledge. Hopefully, I'll see you around New Orleans this week, uh, and we'll Absolutely. catch up. Okay. Thank you, Roland. Bye-bye. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, folks. Got to go to break. When we come back, we'll talk about this case out of Connecticut. Uh, we'll be joined by one of the attorneys working with Ben Crump on this case, a black man paralyzed. They're actually having a rally for him as we speak in Connecticut. You're watching Roland Martin on the filter on the Black Star Network, broadcasting live from New Orleans. Don't forget to support us in what we do. Download the Black Star Network app, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. And, of course, please support us as well by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Your dollars make it possible to do what we do. Uh, see your checks and money orders to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 2003-7-0196. Cash app is R.M. Unfiltered. PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is R.M. Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. And all y'all on YouTube and Facebook, hit the like and the share button. We should easily be over 1,000 likes by now. I shouldn't have to be asking y'all, okay? So when I come back from the commercial break, I better see us hit a thousand on YouTube. Y'all got it? Let's go. Back in a moment. iPhone 13 on us for every customer. Current, new, everyone to show the love. How about sushi? I just had sushi for lunch yesterday. How about tacos? Automatic emergency braking. One of six advanced safety features standard on every 2022 Chevy Equinox. Find new technology. Find new roads. Chevrolet. Of course, I looked up to Spike Lee. Of course, who didn't? I mean, he's a he's a he's a genius. But then also, I was this 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 kid from Brooklyn, right? That felt like you know. Give me my damn respect. I, you know, I, I I made this you know this creative art, right? That people are responding to, and it would have been great if we had the opportunity to sit one on one. Hold on a second. Okay. Spike. So I'm in L.A. right now. I got a one-on-one -on -one series with my network, Black Star Network. And I'm interviewing Maddie Rich. I appreciate that, bro. That, that was, that's a big moment, man. That was like, uh, man, that was good. Got me all choked up. That's good. Well, I'm all about connecting. Appreciate that. Alexa. It's a Buick. Yeah, Alexa. Buick. Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. Coach, that's a Buick. That's an Alexa. The Buick Enclave with available Alexa built-in. I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and on the next Get Wealthy, what do the ultra-wealthy know that most of us don't? Well, the truth is that 
there is financial exclusion. And unfortunately, far too many black folks haven't had access to this knowledge. And that's exactly what we're gonna talk about on our next Get Wealthy with Melinda Hightower, a banker who's doing something to share exactly what you need to do to make it into the high net worth status. They weren't just saving just to save, they were saving for a purpose. That's right here on Get Wealthy with me, America's Wealth Coach, only on Black Star Network. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Hey, folks, this is a live look at uh, a rally for a young man, um, Randy Cox. Y'all go to it, please. Go to it, please. Thank you. Um, and of course, uh, this, this is the story that we're covering. Ben Crump, uh, is, is speaking right now. In fact, um, young man, uh, who was, uh, paralyzed from the neck down after being seriously injured in the back of a police van when the driver breaks suddenly, he was not, uh, built, he was not, uh, bolted in. Let's actually go to this news conference, uh, and let's hear what Ben has to say. Okay, our audio is not coming through, but again, uh, that's actually uh, happening uh, as uh, we speak. Uh, again, uh, man, a really uh, just a horrific story reminds us of the Freddie Gray story. Uh, Chris O'Neill is one of the attorneys who's working on the case along uh, with Ben Crump. He joins us right now. Chris, explain to folks exactly what happened here. I mean, that, that, and I also, I think there's video of this. I saw it on uh, Ben's page. So, th so, he, so he was placed in the back of a police van and they just all of a sudden slam on the brakes and it throws him forward and pretty much breaks his neck? He pretty much got it right, Roland. Uh, the situation was after this young man was arrested without incident, uh, he was placed in the back of uh, the paddy wagon or van. Uh, he was not restrained in any way, shape, or form. There were no other people in the van with him. Uh, but the controlled narrative of the police department was that they had to slam on brakes to avoid an accident. Uh, but the issue is, why were they going as fast as they were going? Why was he not strapped down? And why is it that he had this horrific injury and was not afforded medical care? So, wait a minute, hold up. Slam on the brakes, he's injured, and, and he wasn't taken to the hospital? He was not. In fact, he was actually transported over to the jail. Once he was transported into the jail, they told him to get up, get out. They uh, did not hear his plea that says, hey, I can't move. Uh, they dragged him out by his feet, uh, threw him into a wheelchair, as you can see, and, and then they processed him from that wheelchair uh, in the uh, jail facility and then dragged and threw him into a jail cell. Wow. Um, what has been the reaction from authorities? You fell. What happened? Can you move at all? 
Uh, I think, well, uh, uh, hey guys, do me a favor. Bring the audio down of the videotape, y'all, so I can hear. Uh, I can hear Chris. Chris, go ahead. Thank you, Roland. Uh, what ended up happening is we have that. There's over two hours of recorded uh, uh, footage on this situation from body cams and from uh, the facility itself. But what happened is that the authorities, the city authorities, police department, decided to release what they felt were the most pertinent aspects of this. And by doing that, they attempted to control the narrative. Uh, but you can see in there that there was a reckless indifference to you know, this, this man's well-being, uh, his care, um, and his life for that matter. His life is going to be forever changed. Randy Cox is never going to be the same. Um, no one charged, no one indicted. And just what? Just we're all good? Nobody, anybody suspended? Anybody put on leave? Actually, there were some officers suspended. I believe it was five of them uh, that have been suspended. Uh, and there has been a statement from the mayor of the city of uh, New Haven that indicates that, that they're very uh, disturbed at what they've seen. But there's been no one that's been charged. There's been no one that's been indicted. Uh, we're waiting on all of that. Wow, absolutely uh, incredible here. Um, any, uh, let's see, any questions from my panel? Demario, I'll start with you first. Hey, Chris, good to see you, team. What's up, team? Uh, what's going on? Really sorry. I mean, this is just a heartbreaking video. And, of course, you know, we've worked on these cases a lot together. Now, I think I don't have a question. I just want to remind people that, Again, President Biden had a speech where he said it's harder now than ever to be a police a police officer. That's, a fa that's false. And he also told cities around this country to use the money they received through COVID to give police officers like these officers right here more and more services, more and more resources, more and more money. And I look in this video and I see there are some black officers involved. And that should also be further proof that when we say, oh, we need more diversity in the police department, no, we need a whole new system because this system is corrupt, it's broken, and this stuff happens every single day. Chris, you guys be careful up there in New, uh, Connecticut and tell Ben I said what's up. Certainly will. In fact, Ben is on the other side of this wall right now uh, in a rally where there are city officials, including the interim chief um, and several other people. So we're looking forward to making sure that they respond to the pressure that's being levied against them. Uh, uh, Avis or Mustafa, you have a question for Chris. You know, I'll just jump in. This has huge overtones of what happened to Freddie Gray. Uh, and it makes me think of not only uh, the horrendous actions of the police who were so reckless, so reckless, leading to Freddie Gray's death and leading to this paralysis. I'm also thinking about the, the, what happened after Freddie Gray. And I'm thinking about all of the, you know, all of the sort of the how the police system closed ranks to protect itself and to go after the prosecutor, right? Uh, that to me sends messages. So, in terms of this particular case, um, what do you think are the chances of actually something substantive happening to these police officers? Do you think that that's just a moot point, that it's just going to end up in some sort of civil resolution? Or should we even expect to see some level of criminal culpability for what was, uh, you know, this life-altering injury in the 
full lack of regard for his health and safety after they got him out of the van to just kind of plop him into the wheelchair and process him instead of giving him medical attention. Are, is someone going to be arrested? This, is someone going to serve some criminal uh, time for this type of reckless disregard for human life? You know, that's an excellent question. And I, uh, we've been doing this for many years, as Demario Solomon Simmons indicated uh, uh, a moment ago. Um, and we've seen this playbook. This is not unusual. We actually expect them to now start to attempt to assassinate his character, to attempt to uh, you know, alleviate some of the pressure that's been placed on them, to rally around the folks that are the Blue Lives Matter people. Uh, but ultimately, what it comes down to, and I appreciate exactly what you said, because if there's not a prosecution, that is going to be the decision of an elected official. And if we do not take care to go out and vote and place up candidates that are going to look out for the best interests of our community, uh, that's going to be on us. Ultimately, we have to get out there and put the pressure on. Um, every time there's an incident, that's one thing. But voting is something that is actually scheduled. We know it's coming up. We've got to get, uh, you know, behind programs and stories like what Roland Martin is willing to do, what this show is willing to do. We have to get behind causes like voter registration that I've seen Roland Martin out there day in, day out, trying to get people involved with. So quite frankly, this show and the people that are on this show are going to help push the narrative. When, we t when he talks about getting likes, we need to get more eyes on shows like this because it's going deeper into the coverage than the national uh, media would. Mustafa, well, absolutely, Chris, we appreciate that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why this was created, because we can't hope they show up and cover us. Mustafa, any question? Yeah, you know, Chris, thank you for everything that you and Ben and the rest of the team there does. You know, it seems like uh, there is negligence from the beginning all the way through. I know, without a doubt, that there's training that's supposed to happen around both head and spinal injuries and that you are taught that you are not supposed to move someone. And I heard that young man say that he couldn't feel his legs, that he couldn't move. Um, so do you think at a minimum that negligence, of course, there will be other possible charges, but at a minimum, it seems like negligence was uh, throughout this whole process. That's an interesting uh, take on it. And I actually think that that's exactly what they want us to do, to go that route of negligence, because there are certain protections um, and Demario Solomon Simmons can uh, get into those, but those uh, sovereign immunity protections that protect against certain amount of negligence. So we have to play chess instead of checkers in this situation and not fall into the trap of saying, oh, yeah, look at all of this negligence and hang our hats on that when they know full well that they have protections against those things. All right, then. Uh, Attorney Chris O'Neill, we surely appreciate you joining us. Uh, keep us abreast of what happens with this case moving forward. And thank you for being in that room, Roland. I'm literally on the other side of that room that you were streaming. That's the kind of journalism that black America needs. We appreciate everything that you do. All right, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Marketplace setting. We'll talk with a black wine company owner right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Love our new Alexa. It's a Buick. Yeah, Alexa. Buick. Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. It's a Buick. It's an Alexa. Coach, that's a Buick. That's an Alexa. The Buick Enclave with available Alexa built in. 
impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. How about sushi? I just had sushi for lunch yesterday. How about tacos? Automatic emergency braking, one of six advanced safety features standard on every 2022 Chevy Equinox. Find new technology, find new roads, Chevrolet. On a next A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie, we're talking all things mental health and how helping others can help you. We all have moments where we have struggles and on this week's show, our guests demonstrate how helping others can also help you. Why you should never stop giving and serving others on a next A Balanced Life here on Black Star Network. Hey everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. folks uh what happens when you're an engineer and you kind of want to do some other stuff and then all of a sudden you decide to become a winemaker in alabama y'all that's my next guest uh welcome to the show uh Rada griffin uh owner and uh venter of anisa wakefield wines in huntsville alabama glad to have her on the show so okay seriously so we go from engineering to wine was it because you loved it or did you say man i see a business opportunity well, because I love it, and, and to go back a little bit more, um, I'm a private chef. So when I rebranded my private chef company back in 2017, um, I had already been studying wine for several years, since 2009, actually. And when I rebranded my private chef company, I was like, what can I do to make me stand out even more, to make me more unique? Um, as a reintroduction to the company. And so I was like, well, you've been studying wine, you love wine, so why not start your own wine label? And that's kind of where it started. Wow, uh, and, so, and so is your winery there in Alabama? So I make, I produce the wine out in Napa. So I partner with the company ah. that kind of will come in and do incubator style winemaking. I have a wine consultant there. And so while I'm here in Alabama being an engineer, um, my wine is still being, being produced and, and uh, taken through all the process in Napa while I'm here. Wow, okay. And so um, how has it gone? First of all, how, how long have you owned uh, the label? So I started the label in 2017. Um, and I made my first vintage in 2018, took a break uh, to go to Cornell and get some certifications in wine because I just felt like I needed to have something behind this because I had been studying for so long, I would like to have the certifications. So I took some courses at Cornell during the pandemic because we all had some time. 
and um, started my next vintage in 2021. And so here we are with the vintage from 2021 ready to go. And how many bottles are you moving out? So I only do one barrel at a time. It's, I only do one barrel at a time because it's just myself. And so I have uh, 300 bottles right now. All right. Let's see here. Uh, I would probably say out of the three folks on my panel, Mustafa Frat, you look like, uh, well, no, I know, no, Avis. Avis, you look like the winery person. You look like the wine person. I know right now Avis like, man, slide that bottle over to the sister. <laughs> <laughs> But I love entrepreneurs. So, sister, I just want to ask. Say it, say it again. I said, actually, I, I don't drink, but I love entrepreneurs. So I do have a question. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what'd she say? <laughs> for real, for real, for real. Uh, let me. Do, but I'm, I'm really intrigued with your choice of starting your own sort of wine, your wine brand, your own wine label. And I'm wondering, you know, it's such a rare space that you see us in. You know, we don't really, we're not really there. I know that you have, a, you know, that you love wine. You say you have a background in it. But what made you so bold to say, hey, I want to start my own wine despite all the competition that's out here? Because I, I love the fact that you said, you know, there's a gazillion wines out here, but I can make mine better. What made you want to do it? And then secondly, what makes your specific wine different and unique and separated from the other choices that people have on the market? But it's like you just said, you don't see many of us in the industry. And um, just looking across the industry and studying, um, I didn't see many people that looked like me when I started this journey back in 2009, just trying to gather information. Um, There's lots more information available now on the internet, but back in 2009, it really was like you had to know somebody in the industry that was willing to share the quote unquote secrets of winemaking um, just to to try to learn and understand how winemaking, you know, the process, how the process goes. And so fast forward to 2022 and, you know, you can go learn about wine everywhere, anywhere. But, but it goes back to what you said. There, there weren't many of us in this industry. There still aren't many of us in, the, in this industry compared to mm-hmm. um, our white counterparts and especially the, the white male counterparts. So um, we see a lot of celebrities and um, athletes starting their own wine labels. And I'm so proud of that, that we're starting to get into the industry and just, you know, pulling the culture forward because we drink wine, we buy wine, we know about wine. So, you know, why shouldn't we have our own wine like wine labels? And so that's kind of where that boldness came from. Um, just sitting back and looking across the industry and just saying, there's not enough of us. And I want to be one of them. All right. Uh, Demario, we know you drink. <laughs> no, sir. But I'm excited to talk to this sister. I'm really excited. She's a we know, yeah. Private. We know yeah, you huh? drink, but you got that damn vegan food. 
That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to talk to the sister about. I know she's out here talking about her wines. I was wondering when she do her private chef. Nah, she we ain't talking. We ain't talking about no vegan food. We talking about her wine business. Let's stick to the topic. Well, listen, listen. What I was thinking about. I don't know much about wine. Be honest with you, but I do want to ask this question, and it may sound crazy. But do they really make wine with people stepping on grapes with their raw, you know, raw no, feet, their no, their bare no. feet? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh my God! Um, we we well we 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 can tell who's the only Omega on this show today. <laughs> hey, I don't know much right. about it. I'm, I'm, I'm confident. No. I mean, I'm confident uh, 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 to get, I want to give the sister uh, opportunity. I'm confident in right, right, my question. Right, forgive us. For, for, forgive us. Only the only thing he ever remembers is that uh, Lucy is that I love Lucy uh, uh, right. uh, episode yeah. where they were asked. Don't educate me. No, educate no, me on how wine is actually made. I gave her a softball. Please, I gave her please, a softball. Please explain it. Is please explain this Omega how it actually works. So no, you know, back in the day, they used to do that before there was machinery that would do the pressing. Wait a minute, um, say, say, say that again. Say that again, so Roller can understand that this didn't come from just out of my mind. This is a historical. They used to do that. Uh, dude, you? I'm fully aware. Uh, Demario, wait, Demario, I'm fully wait, aware how they used to do it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uncouth. You, well. I, I, you are yeah. a poof, but please continue. Please continue answering. Thank you very much. But currently, no. Oh. So there's we have machines that do the pressing of the grapes to extract the juice. Um, so no, there's no need for feet anymore. Um, and and I can imagine that that was a funky situation um, <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. So I'm, I'm grateful that we don't we don't do that anymore. <laughs> now allow me to go to someone who is more erudite, someone who is more sophisticated, someone who is more cosmopolitan, uh, a fellow alpha. Mustafa, Mustafa, please, please redeem, please redeem uh, the panelists uh, for his countryness. Go ahead. <laughs> I love Demario, brother. Um, Rada, getting back to your product, um, and, and someone had mentioned boldness before, so I'm just curious. Uh, is it a red wine, white wine, sparkling wine? Is it dry? Is it sweet? Uh, could you uh, share? It's a white wine. It's a white blend. Um, so in 2021, I sourced six different varietals to go into this blend. Um, I won't say how many ended up in the blend, because I like the element of surprise, so... Um, once I get my tasting tour going, um, that's going to be the fun part with people trying to guess what the varietals are. Um, but I will tell you that it, it's not sweet. It's not super dry. It's uh, medium. Um, I classify it as dry, um, but it's, it's sweet to me because my palate is just used to picking up the fruitiness from the wine. But um, I I don't drink sweet wines, but I do make them. So, but this one is not sweet. All right. Uh, tell people where they can check out the wine. Uh, where do they go? So you can go to my website, AnissaWakefieldWines.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at AnissaWakefieldWines. 
You can also find me on Facebook at Anissa Wakefield Wines. And you can also find myself on Facebook at Rhoda Griffin. Uh, and, and obviously, question, uh, who is Anissa Wakefield? So, Anissa is my middle name by my mom. Wakefield is my dad's last name. So, it's just a joining the family. So, it's just a... Um, okay. Homage to my family, yeah. All right, sounds good. Well, we appreciate you joining us on the show. Good luck. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. All right, folks, that is it for today. Uh, Avis, thanks a lot. Demario, uh, De uh, not so sure. Uh, Mustafa, thank you so very much. It's food time by Stepping on Grapes in 2022. Hey, Woo! listen, I need to get the memo. I could have had me some pink. We got to get... Can I have some pink on Avis and Mustafa? That's, that's not right. Y'all did your boy dirty. We got the AKA Alpha thing going on here. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I see how you are. Okay. <laughs> well, you had, you you had Chris O'Neill on, so you had one of my frat brothers on, so I'm good. <laughs> well, you know, somebody got to feel sorry for you quite unfortunate individuals. All right, that's it. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, folks. We'll see you all tomorrow. Don't forget, download the Black Star Network app, all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Amazon, uh, Fire TV, Roku, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. Please support us on the Brain of Funk fan club. Uh, all chicken money orders go to P.O. Box 57196, uh, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash app, Dallas at RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zell, rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Folks, thanks a bunch. I'll see y'all tomorrow from New Orleans. Holla!